Psalm 98. And I'm going to read the psalm. Excuse me, I'm going to take my jacket off. It's a warm day. Psalm 98. I'm going to read the psalm down as far as verse 6. And then I'd like you to join me in reading, saying the words from 7 to 9. I'm trusting that most of you, if not all of you, have got the New King James Version. So we'll be able to say those words together. So Psalm 98, we're told it's a song of praise to the Lord for his salvation and judgment. And God's word reads, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. And then join me in saying, Let the sea roar and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world. And the peoples with equity. We that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Well, if you would, could you turn in your Bibles with me to Romans and chapter 3? Romans and chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse 19. Romans chapter 3, reading from verse 19. Down to verse 26, Romans chapter 3. And the reference here to the law is, of course, not the law of the land, but the law of God revealed through Moses at Mount Sinai. Verse 19. Let's hear the word of God once again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, 
to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a very dense uh, few verses with lots to unpick from it. And that's what we're going to be doing in a short while. Well, as I've indicated, we're going to be looking at these verses in Romans chapter 3, and uh, particularly verses 20 to 26. Uh, and if you like part of, the te- of a text to hang a message on, then it's those words that we find uh, at the beginning of verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. But now the righteousness of God is Revealed. I wonder what you think is the single most important paragraph in the whole of the Bible. I would imagine, without my having read Romans 3 earlier, you might have come up with some other passages. You might have said, well, there's sections of John 3. Surely that's some of the most important sections in the Bible. Or maybe maybe Romans chapter 8. There's all sorts of passages that we could choose and say... That surely is one of the most important passages in the whole of the Bible. But I'm going to suggest to you that both on the one hand, because all scripture is God-breathed, all of it's important, you know that. But I'm going to suggest to you that this passage that we've read together this morning is probably the most significant paragraph that has ever been written. Not just in the Bible but the most significant passage that's ever been written. I do think that personally, um, but I was caused to contemplate that that might be the case by Leon Morris in his commentary on Romans. He, He makes the point that in his commentary, he feels that the heart of the, the Roman epistle, the truth that uh, Paul is opening up for us as he expounds the gospel in this letter, is encapsulated in these verses. Because they describe what God has done for guilty sinners. And if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, wherever they've come from in the world, whatever their background or ability, they need to hear the gospel because they're guilty sinners. And these few verses reveal for us God's purposes in the gospel. (coughs) Just a few quick reminders about how Paul gets to this point in Romans chapter 3. In the the first chapter, he tells us that he knows that he has been personally set apart for the gospel. He tells us that in chapter 1 and verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verses 8 to 15 of chapter 1, he tells the church in Rome, a community of God's people who he has not yet met with, even though he might know some of the people in that church personally, he's not actually met with that congregation. But he tells them, as he writes to them, that he longs to see them and to preach the gospel among them. Uh, You can see that there in in verse 11. He says, everyone who, uh, sorry, let me find verse 11 in the right chapter, that really does help. For he said, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. 
and that established is in the, in the work and word of the gospel. But after he's done this in these opening verses, he then goes on to speak about the sinful condition of the human heart. He introduces the greatness of the gospel in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And then from verse 18 onwards, he speaks of what the human condition is like and what the human condition in sin deserves. Uh, You can see that at the end of chapter 1 in verse 32. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. So, in his writing to the church there, and conscious that there were Jews in the church who thought they were perhaps just a little bit of a cut above everybody else because of their history. He's pointing them to the fact that all of them, under sin, deserve that penalty of death. And he's conscious that there are those that, the, that are condemned. All of us are condemned by the law of God. This is the key aspect of his purpose as he speaks about the sinful condition of human nature. And he's trying to show that whilst on the one hand there is this deep sinfulness of all humanity, there's also a way to be righteous. And that's what we're going to be thinking about in these verses from chapter 3. The opening chapters of, of Romans really establish for us a bleak yet realistic picture. What the human heart is like. And as we look around the world today, we see that the description that Paul gives us is apparent, isn't it? In the state of the world, and we have to confess in the state even of our, of our own hearts. But these opening chapters also establish that the righteousness that God requires is actually ultimately something more than us as sinful human beings can manage. It's something more than we can achieve. It's not possible for us by our own efforts to be righteous in God's sight. Chapter 3 verse 10 reminds us there is none righteous, no Not one. However good they may seem to be. Everything about us is is sin stained. So the verses we're going to look at teach us. That though we're incapable. There is a right standing before God that is possible. And it comes as a gift. And that gift comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul unpacks what that means Here in verses 21 to 26. And in doing so, he uses three really important words. They're found in verses 24 and 25. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. What we're going to do is just look at those three words. They're not words used in the way the Bible uses them, certainly, in common currency in English today. But they were words 
in the original Greek that were in common currency in Paul's day. People would have understood what he was getting at with those words. But before us, we, we look at the significance of those words, there are three things that we need to be convinced of. Firstly, that the righteous standard of God, the righteousness that God looks for in us, is something that is more than we can manage by any effort of our own. That righteousness is set forth in the Old Testament by the law of God and by the word of God through the prophets. Paul makes mention of that in verse 21. These writings affirm God's standard of righteousness. And our inability to reach that standard of righteousness is proved by the way in which Israel's history showed that for all their efforts, even at their best, they were incapable of rising to the standard of God's righteousness. But nevertheless, though we can't manage it, it is a righteousness that we need if, to, if we're to be in a right relationship with God. And that's why the good news of this passage is that righteousness is available and it's available as a gift. And the introduction to the way in which Paul is going to un unpack that is in those words at the beginning of verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So righteousness is more than we can manage. We can't think by keeping the law we're going to manage that righteousness. We've got to find this righteousness as something that God has revealed and which God will give as a gift. So that's our second point, verse 22. Righteousness is the gift of God. That righteous standing before God is given to all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have faith in him. And this is true for anyone. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what their status, their intellectual ability, their social class. Any other distinctions that we might feel separate us are irrelevant. All of us can receive this gift of righteousness from God. It's a gracious gift. And it's a gracious gift that comes to all those who believe in the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly... Not only is righteousness more than we can manage, and righteousness is the gift of God, but righteousness is everyone's need. That's what verse 23 is telling us. It's one of the key verses, isn't it, in the epistle to the Romans. It affirms that we're all in the same position because we've all sinned. We've failed to reach God's standard of righteousness. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes it's helpful to recognise or, or to illustrate the points that I'm trying to make in this way. I don't know whether any of you have had a bow and arrow and a target and never had to go archery. But when you've got the target in front of you uh, and you take an arrow and you place it in the bow and you shoot it towards the target, you are righteous if you hit the target. But if the arrow falls short and goes into the ground, you're a sinner. Uh, and that's the terms that they, they use in archery. Particularly for the arrow that falls short. That arrow is a sinner. The person who's fired it is a sinner. 
And that illustrates for us that though God has set this standard of righteousness like a target, we can't hit it. We always fall short and therefore we are always sinners. And God therefore needs to do something on our behalf so that though we fail and fall short, we can actually be counted as righteous. And the three words that we've identified in verses 24 and 25 help us to understand how God does that. So firstly, the word justified or justification. This is a legal term. It means that a judge has declared that a person who had been counted guilty is not to be condemned. And it's important that we explain that that's what the word justified means. I can remember talking to somebody who was doing Christianity Explored with us at one stage and the word justified came up. And I said to them, you do understand what justified means, don't you? And they said, yes. It means that when you're typing, the text meets both of the margins. And if you use a computer and you know that there's a button that you can press and it will justify the text and it moves it so that it all fits neatly between the margins. So that's the use of the word justified. But it's not the way the Bible uses the word justified. In this context, it's a legal term. It's saying that somebody who had come before the judge counted as guilty is now acquitted. Now, if they are guilty and they're acquitted, then that seems completely unjust, doesn't it? The guilty person should be found out and condemned. So if an earthly judge was to acquit somebody who the jury said was guilty... He would be acting unjustly and he would probably be barred from ever being a judge ever again. But what about if the judge himself was the person who had been offended against and the person in the dock was the person who was guilty of the offence? Well, in the British legal system and in most of the legal systems of the world, the judge would not be allowed to sit. The technical term is he'd have to recuse himself or disqualify himself and say, I can't try this case because there's too much of a danger I will be biased. The bias is more likely towards condemning the person, isn't it? If he's quite convinced that this is the person who committed the crime against him. But he would be definitely unjust if he then was to acquit the person because he would be breaking the dictator of the law. And yet God justifies the sinner. He is the judge. He's also the one who's been offended against. And he knows perfectly, even without any other witnesses, how guilty the sinner is. So how can God do this when in our legal system we wouldn't allow that to happen? Well, the scripture makes it clear that our sin is first and foremost an offence against God. But because God is holy, righteous and just, because he can be absolutely trusted in everything, he doesn't have to recuse himself. From being the judge. 
He doesn't have to say, oh, well, this sin is all against me. I, I shouldn't judge this. Because of his character, the perfections of his character, there is no chance that he will unjustly acquit the guilty or condemn those who are not guilty. He has the right both to acquit and to condemn. And the reason he can do this is not only because he is an absolutely perfect, holy, just judge, but because his son has satisfied his justice on behalf of those who deserve the penalty for sin. This is why the cross is absolutely crucial. It's crucial to Christianity. There is no Christianity without the cross. The cross, And I don't mean necessarily a cross on the wall or a cross on a chain or a cross in a drawing or a picture. I mean the cross upon which the Lord Jesus Christ died. It's because the Lord Jesus died and died to take the penalty that those who are guilty deserve that Romans 8, as Paul develops his argument, says... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by being in Christ Jesus, it means that as they have looked in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, they have been spiritually united with Christ. They're in him. And therefore what he has done for them perfectly satisfies everything that God expects in his justice. That the sinner should face. And that is his condemnation and wrath. And so he can look at the sinner. Without condemning them. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty. For your sin and for mine. And I could be counted not guilty. And therefore no longer liable for the penalty. For which, uh, what, for which sin is deserving. At the same time, because I'm now in Christ and his death has taken the place of the death that I deserved, there's something else that happens as well. There's a great exchange takes place. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to me. So I'm not just righteous because Christ has died in my place. I'm righteous because I am in Christ and Christ's righteousness has been given to me. Great exchange has taken, has taken place. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sin from us. We're completely separated from it. And his righteousness has been, to use the technical term, imputed. It's been given to us as if it was ours. So that we stand justified... And therefore righteous in God's sight. And God does this for all those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. As Romans 8.30 says, Those God predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Now, can I just ask you this morning, do you know that you're a justified sinner? And do you notice the two words I put side by side? You know that you're a justified sinner. You know that you fail and fall short. You know that you're like the arrow that drops into the ground before the target. 
And yet at the same time you can know that you're justified because of what Christ has done on your behalf. He's taken the penalty. He's given you his righteousness. And you legally now are able to stand before God as righteous in his sight. It's essential to know that. Absolutely essential. If you want to be in that right relationship with God. Secondly, our second word is redemption. Verse 24. And this word is taken from the world of business. Particularly the business world of the slave market. And would have been used in the context of a slave who was able to buy his freedom. He was able to be redeemed. Either because he was able to find the redemption money for himself. Or because somebody else paid the redemption money for him. That set him free. So slaves, by paying a ransom, or having somebody else pay a ransom for them, could be redeemed. And Paul uses this word redemption here, because when Christ pays the penalty for our sin, that is an act of redemption. He's paying what we should pay, and he pays it instead of us. Christ dies in our place, He purchases our freedom by his own death. And the proof of his death that he has paid that price is in the blood that he shed. The shedding of his blood, particularly through the action of the spear that was thrust into his side, proves that Jesus died on the cross. Now I know there are those who would try to say that he swooned, that he wasn't really dead. But the Roman soldier knew that when he thrust that spear into the side of the Lord Jesus and blood and water flowed out, it was the proof, the evidence, that he had died. So the penalty had been paid. So as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course the historical, if you like, spiritual background to that is the rescue of the children of Israel out of Egypt. That is called in the Bible a redemption. How is it a redemption? Well, because every family had to take a lamb and they had to kill the lamb and take its blood and mark the doorframe of their home so that the angel of death would pass over. That was called a redemption. God redeemed his people out of Egypt. And he did it because he called Israel his firstborn son and he told Pharaoh through Moses that if you don't let my people go, I will claim the lives of your firstborn. So it was that God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. And ever since then, pious Jews celebrate a Passover meal. And they continue to do so today. If you go into the home of a group of pious Jews, they will celebrate the Passover. And what are they doing? They're remembering God's deliverance of them as a people all those centuries ago when they were delivered out of Egypt. And that's why we as Christians, and we did this last time I was here in the Sunday evening service, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
Because in the same way, we're remembering the greater redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus died, he died for his people. Some of you might remember the old chorus that said, he laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep. This shepherd so kind had me on his mind when he laid down his life for his sheep. Now, do you know that you're redeemed? Do you know that the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed for you? And that because that blood was shed for you, you don't have to face the condemnation, the penalty that God has set for those who are sinners. Because Christ has faced it for you, he's died in your place, and you've been redeemed by his precious blood. It's crucial that you know that. Because justification and redemption go together. As Paul has put And then thirdly, and lastly, propitiation. Propitiation, verse 25. Lots of translations, particularly modern translations, don't include that word. And um, it's a moot point whether that's critical or not. The key thing is that we understand what is behind the word that's translated (coughs) propitiation. Some translations translate it as sacrifice of atonement. But the word in Greek comes this time from the world of religion. So we've had a word from the word of of the law, we've had a word from the law of the businessman, and now we've got a a word from the world of religion. And it's a word that describes how a sacrifice can be the object of God's wrath. So that the sacrifice takes the place of the one who ought to come under God's condemnation. But instead, God's wrath is directed towards the sacrifice. And he looks upon the sinner with favour. There's a sense in which what a propitiating sacrifice does is it turns aside God's wrath. Or deflects God's wrath. Or absorbs God's wrath. So that God can behave as it were, favourably towards us. Propitiously towards us. In other words, we can be his friend. And not his enemy. Let me illustrate it like this. If you remember the, the, the space shuttle. When it used to come back into the earth. To back down to earth. It had to align itself in a particular way. And it had to have all those special tiles on its undersurface. So that as it came back through the Earth's atmosphere, as the heat intensity increased and the the spatial should have been burnt up, it wasn't. The tiles absorbed it all. And once the shuttle had landed and it had all cooled off, then the engineers had to take the tiles off and put a new lot on because they were so damaged by the heat. What were the tiles doing? They were absorbing the intensity of the heat as the shuttle came back through the Earth's atmosphere. And there's there's a picture there, isn't there, of what Christ is doing. The intensity of God's wrath is directed towards us who are sinners. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes in between. And he takes the fullness of that wrath so that we're not consumed. 
or perhaps more recently, the James Webb Telescope. You know, they shot that little telescope up into space. It's sending back incredible pictures of the furthest reaches of the universe. But it has to have a shield. And the critical moment in the setting up of the James Webb Telescope was when the shield unfolded. If the shield didn't unfold, the, the, the telescope and all the instrumentation with it would be destroyed. But the shield is aligned so that the intensity of the cosmic rays, particularly the solar rays coming from the sun, don't destroy it. And it functions brilliantly. But it will only function as long as that shield remains intact. When that shield fails, then the whole thing will fail. In the same way for us, the Lord Jesus Christ absorbs, he reflects, he deflects, he turns aside the wrath of God so that we don't have to face that for ourselves. And God is able to remain righteous in doing this because what the Lord Jesus Christ does fully satisfies his justice. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one who's turned it aside. The one who's deflected it. The one who's absorbed it. And so the, through the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood, God demonstrates that he is righteous. God's just wrath is faced by Christ. Because he, the sinless one, bears the penalty our sin deserves. Or 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. And by that statement, John is meaning for, the, for, the, for anyone from anywhere in the world, it's possible for them to know that propitiating work of Christ's sacrifice. Now, I'm not expecting you to go away with the word propitiation on your tongue, but can I ask you, do you rejoice in the fact that Christ's sacrifice has propitiated for you? In other words, that it has dealt with God's wrath and you're therefore no longer under God's condemnation because you need to know that or otherwise even though you may not feel it now there will be a time when you will know unrestrained the wrath of God against sin and verse 26 the last part of that uh, section that we read really just sums up what Paul is saying here. It says that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the remarkable thing about this is that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ not only deals with the sins of all those who've lived since Jesus, but it actually deals with all the consequences of the sin of those who lived before. So that every one before Christ's death and resurrection who took God at his word and believed his promise and looked to him that they might know the righteousness of God, that they might know the mercy of God in being in a right relationship with him, they too were saved through Christ just as we are. So that's why Paul says 
Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The old covenant believer may not have known the name Jesus, may not have known the person of Jesus, but they did know the promise of Jesus. And as they trusted that promise, so the work of Christ was effective for them under the old covenant, just as it is for us under the new. Righteousness is always God's requirement. And the absolute righteousness of his standard cannot be altered. But God is graciously willing to provide righteousness as a gift. And he gives it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we recognise that the Lord Jesus is the one through whom we can be justified, through whom we can be redeemed, and through whom God's wrath is propitiated.